Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. Steven Yeun broke through as an actor in 2010 when he played the fan-favorite character Glenn Reed on The Walking Dead. It kicked off a career that's long since eclipsed his time on that show, though. He was in Okja, Sorry to Bother You, and he's starring in the new movie Minari. Minari is set in the 1980s. It tells the story of the Yees, a Korean-American family that moves from California to rural Arkansas to grow vegetables. As time goes on, the family struggles. Their well runs dry, vendors cancel their orders, but their bond grows stronger. It's worth mentioning, too, that Minari currently has a 99% fresh rating on Rotten Tomatoes, which is no small feat. When I talked to Steven Yeun in 2018, he was in another critically acclaimed film, one of my favorites of the past few years, Burning. It's a sort of thriller. Lee Chang-dong is the director and writer. It's set in South Korea and tells the story of a dark, strange love triangle. The protagonist, Jong Soo, is a working-class guy who lives in a rural area outside Seoul. One day, when he's in the city, he meets Hei Mi, a girl from back home. They connect, go on a date, start hanging out. They aren't exactly boyfriend-girlfriend, but you can tell that Jong Soo is kind of infatuated with her. Things change when she comes back from a trip abroad. She shows up at the airport with Ben. That's Stephen's character. Ben is handsome and rich. It's not clear where his money comes from. As Hamey starts to spend more time with Ben, hints start to drop that Ben has a darker side. I don't want to give away too much, so let's leave it there and get into my interview with the wonderful Stephen Yun. Stephen Yun, welcome to Bullseye. It's nice to have you on the show. Thank you for having me. You grew up in Detroit, Michigan. Yes. What was Detroit, Michigan like when you were growing up? I grew up in the suburbs of Detroit, Michigan. I got to visit Detroit every week because my folks owned a beauty supply on Woodward downtown right across the street from the Sears building, which eventually got demolished. Detroit was like, at that time, the place you don't go to, uh, rather the place that, you know, your immigrant parents work. That's kind of how I saw it. While I lived in the bustling dry metropolis or the suburban metropolis as known as Troy, it was quiet, grassy, a lot of shopping and just running around outside. That's mostly what it was. What kind of running around outside? I mean, like skateboarding in a cul-de-sac or something? <laughs> I wish. I wish I was that cool. Um, actually, <laughs> um, it was a lot of... <laughs> what could be cooler? Uh, yes. <laughs> yeah, I was pretty not cool. Hockey, street hockey, football, soccer, baseball. It was just pre-internet life, which I can barely remember. It is. I mean, like, we're a similar age, and it is odd to think that there is a demarcation in your life before and after you could just go on the computer and just stay there for five hours. <laughs> oh, yeah. Or like when all book reports looked exactly the same because it was all <laughs> off that Encarta 95 disc. You know what I mean? Like it was just Britannica or Encarta. And, you know, now it's like 
people's opinions. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think they steal from more specific sources. Of course, now, of course. Primarily. Yeah yeah, 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 And now we know that those collections of information were slightly tainted. Well, there was a time, yeah. I think, when the promise of the computer was mm. that you could add a color photograph to your report. <laughs> yeah, that's really And that would launch you onto the honor roll. Yeah, or like uh, you get one of those like dissolving fades on your video project <laughs> that you had to do. <laughs> and it's mostly the rich kids that got to do those little things because their parents have those texts. But yeah, no, different times. <laughs> did you grow up in, I mean, you went to church. Did you go to a Korean American church? Yes, I did. So mm -hmm. did you grow up in a Korean American community or did you, like how much of your life was defined by your parents' Koreanness, mm. and how much of your life was miscellaneous suburban Midwesterner? Um, I, I led a very dualistic life. You know, I trace it back nowadays and think about immigration. And I had some stories from the past where I was like, oh, I, I remember getting dragged in, kicking and screaming to class every single day when I was in kindergarten. Uh, and then they just sat me down with uh, Play-Doh. Um, I remember my dad telling me my first word, English words were, what does don't cry mean? And, you know, they've just become like funny myths or like ideas or stories that you tell yourself and to, to give yourself a backstory. But then like you really process that in your adult age and you're like, maybe that was messed up. Like maybe that was really traumatic and I didn't know how to deal. But I do remember that. I think it connects is that made me so scared that I desired to be part of, you know, what was popular and normal, which was, you know, white suburban uh, culture. And, and then I had this other portion, which was church friends. And that was where it felt like family felt comfortable. I felt like myself. Were you aware of the difference between you? I mean, I presume that you had peers in school who were, you know, going to young life or whatever, mm -hmm. like Christian youth groups and mm -hmm. stuff. Mm -hmm. Like, were you, were you aware of the difference between your world of Christian youth culture and mm. their world of youth, Christian youth co well, culture? You know, I don't know if I was that aware until we went to a massive young life conference. And it was one of those huge uh, church retreats where like, there's like, I don't know, a hundred youth groups from a hundred different churches. And we were the only Korean one that went. And I remember uh, getting a couple, you know, kid racist things like, you know, seeing that the bus was, had Korean letters on it. So, you know, people do the whole like ching chong thing or whatever. Um, but I, I, you know, it wasn't too bad cause it was still Christian. Um, they were trying to keep it cool, <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> the funniest part of that was like, we did distinctly feel out of place and then it all culminated to winning the broomball championship and we won that. Like we won it. Uh, we went, lost our first game, got dropped down to the loser tier and then worked our way back up to a final penalty hit, penalty shot where this, one of my friends at church, Danny Kim, he hit this amazing shot that like he, ch he chipped it. So it went over the goalkeeper and right over his shoulder into the goal. And we went ballistic. And um, I think they respected us after that. I feel like that was... <laughs> The Korean, suburban Detroit's Korean American population's <laughs> version of the, you know, what was that, 1984 
USA versus the yeah, USSR he, hockey game. Yes, that's exactly right. Uh, it was peak, peak life, I think. <laughs> you live here in Los Angeles, right? Mm -hmm. And do you also have a brother who lives here in Los Angeles, yes. has a restaurant not, not that far from here in mm -hmm. Koreatown. What is it like for you to see the particular kind of Korean-American experience that exists here in Los Angeles where yeah. there are places where there are many fully independent worlds of upper-middle-class Korean and Korean-American people both like Koreans living in America who might mm -hmm. not identify themselves even as American mm -hmm. and immigrants who have upper class lives that are majority Korean, like they're living in a mm -hmm. Korean American world. Mm -hmm. What's that like for you to see as, as an adult, as a guy who came here when you were in your mid late twenties? Well, I mean like sometimes you'll meet kids from Hawaii or SoCal Korean kids or even the Bay and they're just unlocked, you know, or they're normal. Um, they don't have this image of Korean American or Asian American that they're kind of acquiescing to. You know, I'm, I'm from Michigan. And while I didn't experience intense overt racism, I experienced more like I'm projecting onto you the space that you're allowed to inhabit. And it's this big. And... I won't objectively tell it to you, but you'll feel it in fear and you'll feel it in the way that we treat you in like a very small, subtle way. So you all of a sudden find yourself, you know, saying like, oh, like I like violin. And you're like, I don't really like violin, but I'm pretty much, I think I'm supposed to like violin. Or you go, I can't be on the football team, but I can be on the tennis team. And you're like, oh yeah, I like tennis. And you make all these cognitively dissonant decisions for yourself and you tell yourself and you convince yourself that like these are decisions that are coming from you and they're truthful honest decisions that you yourself had complete agency over and then you look back and you go oh most of this was just to like fit the mold or keep safe or make myself predictable to these people so that i don't get harmed or that i feel accepted and then you know, if you're lucky enough to break through that type of, you know, mental prison you've set up for yourself, then you have to do the work to like rebuild like your actual being. Well, I mean, one of the things is you're describing like coming to terms with the idea of like, for example, do I actually want to play on the tennis team? Right? Yeah. But like in rejecting it, you're also making a choice that you have to deal with the consequences. Yes. Of. That, yes. Whereas uh, I might be in the position to just not be into tennis. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's what I would watch a lot of my, you know, I said this uh, before I did a story um, at Riot LA and, and, I, and I won't speak for other people, but I'll speak most. I mean, I can only speak for myself, but for me, I wanted to assimilate very badly um, to the point where I even wanted something as dumb and benign as storage. You know, like I distinctly remember being like, I want storage. I didn't know, <laughs> like there's nothing special about storage, but I was like, I want that because my friend Tony Hartman has that. Like, we, you know, we sat by in his house and we're like, let's play Nintendo. And he's like, oh, I can't play Nintendo. And my mom says it's in storage. And I'm like, storage? What the hell is storage? How do I get that for myself? <laughs> you know? You want <laughs> How do I tap into this, <laughs> yeah. this symbol of late capitalism? <laughs> yeah. How do I get access so that I can put it away in a non, you know, where I can't access it uh, uh, very fast? Like, it's just so dumb, but I 
I wanted it. I wanted that. I wanted the dog. I wanted the photo on the mantle going to Cabo San Lucas with my family. I want, you know, like I remember teaching kids soccer in Chicago when I was um, just starting out and you'd see these like two-year-old, three-year-old kids, you know, living very nouveau riche lives being like, I just came back from Turks and Caicos. And you're like, damn, I didn't even know that was a place. And I'm 25, you know, like I never even set foot in that type of place before. And it's just, you know, it's, it's this old, overall, it's just finding a comfort with yourself. And that was part of my growth. That was part of, um, I think my Asian American upbringing that when juxtaposed to Korean kids that I meet in LA who are just like, yeah, I'm Ted Kim. So what? And I'm like, you're Ted Kim. Like it took me a while to not be. Korean kid number five, and now I'm Steven, you know? And then even then they want to nickname you. I remember growing up too, like having a very strong aversion to people trying to nickname me. Like I couldn't stand it. Like if they tried to nickname me, I lose my mind. And I often wondered where that came from. And in retrospect, it was just like, I wanted to feel like I had control over something. Uh, my name would be one of them, you know? But yeah, small, like crazy stuff like that. It seems like the kind of sensitivity that assimilation requires to the expectations of everyone around you and the facade that you have to maintain mm. to engage those in the right way mm. is, you know, it's like a major acting job. Yeah, I was awesome at it early. And then you, you know, then you come of age and you unpack so many other things where you're like, if I went through this as a straight male, what's that like to be gay? What's that like to be a woman? Like, what's that like to be black? And you're just, then you, you know, you go through all this stuff. And, um, but just talking from my point of view, yeah, it's hard, hard work to constantly put on a show every waking minute that you're outside. In Burning, you play Korean, that is to say, a native-born Korean. Mm -hmm. And I think this is the first time you've played a native-born Korean mm -hmm. on screen. Is that mm -hmm. true? Uh, yes. Well, We're, technically, you could argue that K in Okja was natively born there, but he is not. He's right. fully American. But yeah, this is the first time I've played a currently native Korean. Were you afraid to do that? I was afraid to do it for a split second before I met director Lee, where I just kind of processed and I told myself like, hey, there's a version of this where you say no to him, uh, where you say, I don't think I can accomplish what you, what you require me to do. But then after I met him and he gave me the blessing to be like, I, I think you're the person to play this part. I didn't think about it. I just was like, all right, now I have work to do. But I think that type of like dumb bravery comes from this one moment that I remember in my life where I was in Chicago and the dream, like, you know, you can't make money in Chicago doing acting. You can try. Some people get, you know, really great gigs, but it's hard over there. It's basically either you booked a 20 year long running series of rallies commercials. Yes. Yeah. Or you're not making yeah. a living. Acting. Yeah. There's that is the job. You're either TJ Jagodowski yeah. or you're nobody. Uh, no, I mean, there's incredible talent over there, but like, there's not the opportunity. So when you land one of those, um, uh, uh, like an industrial industrial. That's what it is. But I did a live industrial, <laughs> <laughs> like an industrial stage show. An industrial is 
a word for a film that's used within commerce mm-hmm. internally. So like training videos mm-hmm. often, things or like, like that. like trade shows. Yeah. Uh, I did a, con- a microchip convention trade show where I had to do an industrial playing in the vein of hero from heroes. <sighs> and I had to do a 15-page monologue on the chip which was made originally for someone who had ear prompter experience. I had zero prompter experience and it actually bugged. It was harder for me to use the prompter. So I was like, screw it. I have to just memorize 15 pages of technical jargon. And I somehow did it. I somehow did it. And after that, I was like, cool, I can do anything. (laughs) I can do that I could do anything. So when I did this role, it was just like, cool, I got the blessing. I just got to amp up my Korean. And then I just got to memorize these words. Like, let's go. Yeah, because one of the things that I want to know is how much Korean were you speaking in your life Mm. before you got this part? Luckily, my parents retained my Korean. Uh, We only speak Korean in the house with them. So my accent wasn't altered too heavily. I lost it a little bit, but it was, it's easily, it, it comes back very easily. Now where I don't have a lot of information is just kind of nuance and, and updated modern nuance and also uh, just a deep well of vocabulary so, and the ability to read well. So Korean is very phonetic and so you can read everything. But it's not like how we, you know, you're supposed to scan a word. We scan words as we go. In Korean, I was like literally reading every letter. So it was like like a, you know, kindergartner's reading ability. And so just a lot of work. Just to like, it was, it was very technical at first. And then I just got through it and it became more natural. We'll finish up with Steven Yun in just a minute. After the break, is there anything he is a crazy fan of? Like... Does he have a Star Wars tattoo or something? It's Bullseye for MaximumFun.org and NPR. This message comes from NPR's sponsor, NerdWallet, a personal finance website and app that helps people make smarter money moves. Have new money goals this year? Whether you want to use credit card points to plan a family vacation abroad once it's safe, or take advantage of low mortgage rates to refinance and save for your child's education, NerdWallet is the best place to shop financial products to help make your 2021 money goals happen. Discover and compare the smartest credit cards, mortgage lenders, and more at nerdwallet.com. I can't hear are you myself, but I'm These are real podcast listeners, not actors. And hey, thanks for coming. Here's a list of descriptors. What would you choose to describe the perfect podcast? I mean, vulgarity. Dumb. Definitely dumb. And like, uh, right here, this one, meritless. What if I told you there was a podcast that did have all of that? No. Jordan Jesse Go. And it's free. Jordan Jesse Go? Jordan Jesse Go. Jordan Jesse Go. A real podcast.
Hey, my name is Peter Sagal, and I'm here to help you with the most pressing problem facing civilization today. There are too many good podcasts to listen to. Now, why not avoid that whole problem by listening to an extremely silly podcast hosted by me? On Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, it's wisecracks about the week's news, shenanigans, fart jokes, and general silliness. And doesn't that sound pretty great right now? Listen to the Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me podcast from NPR. Welcome back to Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is actor Stephen Yoon. You've seen him in Burning, Okja, and The Walking Dead. He's starring in the new movie Minari, which is out now. He and I talked in 2018. How comfortable were you as a guy in your mid to late 20s who was pretty new to acting in like year two of The Walking Dead Mm. when you were walking into the, no pun intended, the enormity of the fan culture around the show. Like, yeah. It's probably one of the five or so biggest deals in fan culture. Yeah. And that is a huge part of your job as mm. an actor on that show. Mm. You know that you're signed up for your, you know, you're going to be there for five or seven years if the show keeps going and they don't kill you. You know, mm-hmm. like you're you're in. Yeah. It's not like a movie where you can not be in the next one. Yeah. What was it like to blunder into that? Oh, it was tough. It was, uh, I'll be honest with you, like the tough components were just coming from a lifestyle where I was usually the most background of all background people. I mean, I obviously did work in improv to be in front if I could, but on the daily, like, as an Asian dude, like you're not noticed, <laughs> you know, like that's what happens. You're just walking and people are like, that's, here's a thing that's walking. Um, and so I didn't ever know the feeling of being called at or called to. I remember walking into my Best Buy uh, that I was at when I was living in Westwood when I first moved here. The show had just aired its first episode. I wasn't even in the episode, but the fans of the comic had known what I looked like because the casting notices came out. And I walked into the Best Buy that I'd walked into all the time for the last year without any notice. And right as I go in, the guy goes, hey, are you Steven Yun who plays Glenn? I distinctly remember that moment where that's where my life changed, where now I realized that the outside was nowhere to be private either. Like my privacy was gone. And that took some while to deal with. I remember going through some rough patches of just feeling imprisoned in some ways. Like I felt like I couldn't be free to be myself, even though at that point I also didn't know who I was anyway. And so, yeah, that was a, that was an interesting ride. Then you just get comfortable with it. Then you go through this process where like you accept it, but if you just accept it outright and not question it, you can really just become a thing that they want you to become. And so then you play to these things that they say you are. And if you don't uphold those things, then it's dissonant to people. And all of a sudden they're angry that you're not who they thought you were. Well, you have an extra thing to deal with in that context. I mean, I know in in my own tiny scale version of this, I don't have any problem walking around the streets, obviously. Mm -hmm. Although in certain public radio enthusiastic communities, (laughs) Park Slope. Uh, no, but like I don't – that's that's never been a problem for me. The But, you know, when you make work that is really important to people, mm. you have to deal with the prospect of disappointing them. And I find that very difficult. Mm. But perhaps even more than that for me, I find it difficult to 
be present for people for whom I've had a positive impact. And for you, as a guy who, you know, I mean, you were on the the number one key demo television program Mm. in America Mm. as an Asian-American guy with a romantic lead storyline. Like, you mean a lot to people who are huge Walking Dead fans, Mm -hmm. but God knows if you're an Asian-American guy and Mm. you are a Walking Dead fan. Sure, yeah. They might not even be fans of the show. They might just be like, I got to support this dude because they don't have many of us, you know? Yeah, there was pressure there. It's Um, hard to manage it inside yourself. Like, even when you're face-to-face with... Like, it's somebody's telling you the most beautiful thing you've ever heard in your life, but... You're you're also just dealing with the reality of the fact that you you just went to work and did your job, right? As well, best as you could, and you probably you're probably thinking of all the things that you messed up. Oh my god! I, yeah, I have a ca- I'm running catalog. Um, I, I think it's like this. It's like it's not that I was I, I wasn't messed up when people poured their heart out and when I heard truth in their voice. I could still tell when someone asks you for a photo or something when it's like honest. But then there's this other portion where it's not, they're not asking you for a photo. They're telling you that you're going to give you, they're, you're going to give them a photo. Because what happens when you're invited to someone's living room every single week in mass and at that scale and with that type of conversation around it, you are now property of that thing. You are now property to people's visions of who you are. They go, like even if they don't explicitly say you are mine, that's the feeling that they project out. You you can tell when they think you're not a human, but rather this ethereal thing or this metaphor for an idea or even just a character. They go, you are this character. But And those were the moments that really messed me up, actually, was the dehumanization of me. Because in some weird way, I had never even been fully human outside either for myself um, because I was mostly just conforming to another pattern. So then I felt completely empty for a while. Um, And then, you know, you grow up and you stop, you you figure it out. But that's where, it was a weird place. It was a very weird place. Is there anything uh, that you feel that passionately about in the world? I mean, like, do you have a Star Trek tattoo or something? (laughs) No. Um, I don't know why. Um, I have some favorites, but I don't know. I think my ego's too strong. <laughs> <laughs> I got too aggressive of an ego. <laughs> I, I, you know, my grandmother, uh, uh, rest in peace, but she is the family like go getter. And she was hardcore about winning most things. And, you know, I don't know if that's in me, but I definitely can relate to it in some ways. I mean, if it's not in you, you can you can do it on screen. <laughs> I'll try. I'm trying. <laughs> I'm trying. Well, I'm so grateful to you for taking all this time to be on Bullseye. It was really nice to get to talk yeah, to you. Yeah, this was awesome. Thank you. Steven Yeun. Burning, his 2018 movie, is really wonderful. You can stream that on Netflix. His latest film, Minari, is only playing in a few select theaters right now, but keep an eye for a wide release soon. There's also a great profile of Stephen in a recent New York Times magazine. It's by Jay Caspian Kang. It talks about Minari, about Asian American identity, and how Stephen looks absolutely stunning on a video call, which shouldn't really surprise anyone, I guess. I mean, I sat in the same room with a man. I couldn't believe it. 
That's the end of another episode of Bullseye. Bullseye is created from the homes of me and the staff of Maximum Fun in and around greater Los Angeles, California. Here at my house, I'm not afraid to say that I have a grape nut stash. I don't know if you guys know about the grape nuts shortage, but it is real. Uh, And particularly in a pandemic, you don't want to have to make a special trip to get your grape nuts. The show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our producer is Kevin Ferguson. Jesus Ambrosio and Jordan Cowling are our associate producers. We get help from Casey O'Brien and Kristen Bennett. Our interstitial music is by Dan Wally, also known as DJW. Our theme song is by The Go Team, thanks to them and to their label, Memphis Industries. You can keep up with the show on Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube. We post all of our interviews there. And I think that's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. 